0: As the day is getting darker here in Minnesota, it's only proper to hear a dark and devious tale. everybody welcome back to dark and devious uh patrick here checking in with you hello thanks for coming
1: yes thank you for thank you for being on your device whatever that is and listening to us
0: yes um and wherever you're listening to us because hey germany hey uk we see you um Thanks for tuning in. It's exciting to know that like we're in three different continents and that we are like definitely reaching more people um, thanks to, you know, maybe thanks to social media, maybe thanks to advertisements or maybe thanks to, you know, people that have been leaving us those reviews and those ratings, which just boost us up in popularity.
1: Yes, I'm so thankful, my, my people, because like I'm very German, and uh, I've actually just been kind of finding out where my family comes from, because they're German on both sides of the family, um, so it's really cool to have, like, my people are listening, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: and I just realized as you were saying, you know, like, you're German, um, last week's episode was in Germany,
1: Oh, so maybe there were some folks who were fascinated by the case.
0: Yeah. Um. So, our German listeners, please let me know how I did on my pronunciations of names and locations when discussing the Hinterkaifeck <laughs> murders.
1: Yes, that that was a good one. I like. I was still thinking about that days after we recorded it.
0: Yeah, it's one of those. One of those cases where you just it looks like you know the answer, just there's there's no way to prove it.
1: In fact, I was talking to one of my coworkers about it, and he reminded me of this other murder that kind of kind of sounded maybe a little bit similar and that happened here in the United States. So I might be looking into that at some point. I won't give too much away just in case it's like an episode coming up soon. We'll We'll see where that leads me. I've had so many great suggestions from people. It was really hard to pick for this week. And I I eventually decided on, on one that has been like in the back of my, like it's always been in the back of my head. It's probably one of my earliest true crime like introductions actually.
0: Okay, well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing it. Um... And I, I get what you're saying about how it's hard to choose
1: because
0: yeah. there's just so many cases that fascinate me. And then there's the cases that, like, I am obsessed with, but I kind of want to save them till we're a little bit bigger. Right. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to talk about this so bad, but I want a lot more listeners and subscribers,
1: <laughs>
0: you know? It's so. tough,
1: yeah. I mean, you could always... If if we get big, then we can always revisit some of your favorite cases and maybe redo them and uh, you know dive deeper and you know, maybe do something a little bit different with it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I get what you're saying. Yes. But you know, also you never know who else is obsessed with that and will discover us because That's true. Very of, true of that case. So it can work both ways.
0: Yes. Um well, uh, other than just reminding everyone about our social media pages and our gmail, which is gmail podcast@gmail.com. Um yeah, I don't have I don't have much much to bring to the table today.
1: I know, I feel like there this was just a really busy week for me and I'm, I'm like why was it? I mean maybe it was because we're coming off Easter I don't know I feel like I was working a lot oh my my roommate moved out so I have my whole apartment myself which is really exciting
0: yeah I remember I remember our very first recording we had to sit in your bedroom oh yeah on the bed
1: <laughs> so we had like our own little studio yeah in my room mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's been super great. I've still got stuff to move around. I'm really excited about my bar situation because uh, my roommate had this really great like, big wine rack and that's what I set all my liquor stuff, like all my sure. bar stuff on. And, uh, and of course he took that with him and I'm like, oh, I need a really cool storage system for... Like my wine and my all my bar stuff, uh, so I I talked to my parents about this um, my this old um, radio like console radio like had a, a radio and a record player in it, and it belonged to my great aunt. And it's and it's just been sitting in my mom's garage for the last couple years, and uh, yeah, my dad's gonna put wine racks underneath. They're gonna clean it all up, get a piece of glass for the top. And that's gonna be my new bar. And I'm just so excited for it. I wanted it like two weeks ago, but I am just trying to be patient.
0: (laughs) That sounds really cool. And it would fit your apartment really well too, because you have so much vintage uh, and retro style going on already. So that's really cool.
1: Yes, Uh, it's gonna fit right in with everything. So I'm really excited for that. But yeah, well, otherwise you'll have yeah.
0: to you'll have to play barkeep once once we can you know get together a little bit more safely. Yeah, and oh my gosh, rip I would love to. me that. up some cocktails. Um,
1: I've got a great one in mind already.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, um, which I get my second shot this week. That's so awesome. I'm excited for that. I, my, I
1: got my second one. I think it was almost a week ago. It was. I think it was this last Monday.
0: Mm-hmm. It was because we recorded on the same day.
1: Oh right, right, right. Yep. Gosh, it's already been a week.
0: <laughs> yes, it has. Time I flies.
1: didn't feel. I didn't feel any side effects for, for the second shot, which I was really, really. I was prepared to be like, okay, I might feel, a little under the weather the next day, and that's fine. That's normal, but. The next day i felt great so. awesome
0: Woo. i'm hoping that the same thing for me i had
1: yeah.
0: zero side effects from the first one that's good so i'm hoping the second one is just the same
1: yeah awesome so. are are we ready to dive in
0: i'm i'm ready and once again i have no idea what you're gonna tell me and i'm always excited to to hear what's gonna spill out <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm ready.
1: So it's really funny. I just cannot seem to get us out of the 1920s. Like, it's another case in the 1920s. And uh, yeah, I don't know why. I guess this whole decade was just full of really interesting crime. Uh, and we'll talk about it uh, right after our little commercial break.
0: Okay, Chris. So... Um, I love that we're still in the twenties. Um, I love the flapper look. Yes, and
1: the men were just all so handsome. They had that hard part.
0: Mm-hmm, that that like nice, perfect little mustache. Oh yeah, yeah. And the 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 ladies they had some fierce fashion.
1: Yeah, and some of the ladies had mustaches too. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's okay.
1: That's fine.
0: If you have a mustache and you are not of male uh, sex, like it's okay. <laughs> Embrace it, you know.
1: I think there's like a cute name for that, like a mouche or something like that. Oh, it's. I I saw this really cute book about it, and at at the bookstore, it was like a picture book, and it was like this cute little little picture book about like how it's okay for girls to have like a little little wispy hairs on there like it's like oh it's my moosh and I think that's what it's called Hmm. it's adorable
0: yeah that sounds cute anyways we digress (laughs) yes um sidetrack what are we talking about
1: so today we're talking about the pursuit of the perfect murder and we're going to be talking about the Leopold and Loeb case which was one of the, the several crime cases that were considered like the crime of the century. So without further ado, here we go. I'm ready. So what defines a perfect crime? Crimes that go undetected or unsolved for the lifetime of the perpetrator would be a pretty good start. It takes a certain mind a level of wickedness to plan a crime so well plotted that it goes unsolved for so long. Oftentimes we think of heists like the 1990 theft of 13 works of art from the Gardner Museum in Boston. But what about the perfect murder? Today with modern technology, it is very difficult to commit a murder without leaving a fingerprint, a hair, or some shred of DNA or fiber of fabric Uh, that leads back to the suspect. So don't even think about it. But in the 1920s, many of these advances were far from being realized. Furthermore, this period ushered in a drastic change in morality. Speakeasy culture with its jazz music, short skirts, and illegal alcohol consumption tinged the decade with a sort of seedy underbelly that permeated America's urban areas and beyond. At the same time, mass production, scientific advancements, mass marketing, and the access to cheap credit were some of the things driving the boom that made the Roaring Twenties really roar. Today's case combines the lifestyles of the idle rich and the newfound depravity of a sensational obset- obsession with murder. Today, we're talking about two young men who set out to commit the perfect murder Leopold and Loeb. So, Nathan F. Leopold Jr. was born November 19th, 1904, which I have to say uh, one, look out for him because he's a Scorpio.
0: Oh yeah, you do not trust a Scorpio.
1: <laughs> you got to look out for those Scorpios. Uh, and that's the day before my birthday. I'm right on. I'm right on the edge.
0: Are you a Scorpio too? <laughs> I am. Oh, why are a friend? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> so he was born into a wealthy family. Uh, his father had inherited a shipping company. And further expanded his wealth by adding aluminum, can, and paper box manufacturing to his portfolio. So he was really in the right industry for the times because these were all things that were really taking off in the decade. So, like with mass marketing of of things, uh, you know, things like packaging became really important and he was already on it.
0: I mean, talk about like the perfect time to be brought into something
1: (laughs) i know it's crazy how like he it seemed like his father was really busy with the the shipping business because they were shipping kind of like through the great lakes um i got i think if i remember right uh it it was like the largest um shipping company working the great lakes at the (laughs) time um so you think of like anything that you wanted to get from like you know, New York or uh, Michigan, like, and get it to like Minnesota and Wisconsin. And like, these were like the the gateways to getting your products and and merchandise to the rest of the country. And it was a lot quicker to go through the Great Lakes than to maybe go on land. So,
0: I mean, yeah, it, you can take a huge shortcut. You don't have to yeah. go around.
1: Thing. Exactly. So he was really cashing in on this. But it seemed like it was like super busy with that. And then it's like, oh yeah, I'm also going to do like these other things too. So he was a busy dude.
0: Can you remind me where, where are we?
1: Chicago. Okay. That's where these two are based. Yeah. Okay. So uh Nathan Leopold uh, was an excellent student and found himself studying at the University of Chicago at the age of only 15. Whoa. You imagine like, attending college at, as a 15 year old, like you probably haven't gotten your first chest hair yet at 15 <laughs> <laughs> and like here you are studying like serious adult topics uh, of like the world.
0: <laughs> right, and like you're, instead of like a normal 15 year old, like going to the dance on Friday night and like, you know, pep rallies yeah. Um, you're instead sitting in like a quantum physics course right. and your study partner is 24 years old.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also enjoyed studying birds uh, and even had two papers published in the ornithological journal, The Auk. But despite his achievements, happiness seemed to evade Nathan Leopold. He had always been lonely and unhappy as a child. And at the University of Chicago, he hoped to find companionship and friends. At his first school, he had been teased for being shy and overly studious. He also did not take particular interest in sports. And to add further embarrassment, his governess would be waiting at the school gate for him every day to escort him home. Like that's gotta be, that's gotta be kind of embarrassing as a, as a kid. Like, yeah.
0: And you know, it, I, it sucks that he didn't have friends, but I get it too, because when I was, you know, 21 years old, I wasn't going to hang out with a 15 year old, (laughs) you know, I mean.
1: That's, that's true. But, and this was like, um, in the the school before the school that he went to before the university yeah even then like he was still kind of like having a hard time making friends Mm. so leopold had few outlets to turn to his father was distant and preoccupied with his business affairs his mother was ill and his older brothers did not take him seriously only the governess matilda was there to soothe him taking the place of mother and later even lover to both Nathan who was only 12 at the time and his older brother Samuel who was 17
0: and how old is she do we know
1: um I believe she was in her 20s so (sighs) today that would definitely not fly like there would be a prosecution of that I think and I don't know if it was just like, oh, the times were different or they didn't come forward that because that's honestly like that's honestly child abuse when it's like a 12 year old and you're having sex with them.
0: Right. Like
1: today, Matilda would be placed on a on a list.
0: Yeah, it's the sex offender list. Yeah. And um, she might even they might even consider that like sexual assault.
1: Right. I mean, because can a 12 year old really consent when they like they are still just learning about their own bodies? Like they don't, I don't know.
0: And especially back then when, you know, like sex talk was like a big no no. Yeah. You know, you didn't talk about it even as adults. So.
1: And so this was like we were, we're talking like the 19 teens. So. This is even before, you know, he goes to college and, and all that. So a very weird home life for this kid. Like, yep, he's got wealth, but he doesn't have a lot of friends. And he's also got weird, complicated family relationships.
0: Just a bit. Yes. Family's always difficult, but his sounds... Of like a particular case,
1: yes, exceptionally difficult. So, despite all of the chaos in his family in, a, or in his family life, he succeeded in his studies, and moved on to college early. By the time 1924 rolled around, Leopold was 19 and studying law at the University of Chicago. So, 1924 will be that um, key year when the crime itself actually happens. Uh, but he was born to, shocker, wealthy parents. His father, Albert, was vice president at Sears and Roebuck and Company uh, and had an estimated $10 million fortune. That's the equivalent of over $131 million in today's money. So they had it pretty good.
0: Yeah, I I just have a feeling that they had, you know... Fancy dinnerware, maybe.
1: <laughs> yes, um, the, the, all the cars had vanity plates. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard Loeb was born June 11th, 1905. So, he's a Gemini. I don't know necessarily enough about Geminis to
0: all I know is that they're the sign before me. <laughs> Um And I do not fit my sign at all, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, it's more of an amusement, I think. Oh, yes, usually. for sure. Uh, Richard's mother, Anna, was heavily involved in the Chicago Women's Club and associated with the likes of Jane Addams. So Loeb, like his friend Leopold, distinguished himself early. He loved reading and was well-versed in classics and history. But his real passion was for crime novels. He seemed to idolize the criminals in the stories he read who could seemingly get themselves out of any situation. Throughout school, though, he was found to be popular and engaging. He wasn't particularly athletic or artistically talented, but he participated in all kinds of school activities and was liked by his peers. Loeb's boyfriend, or boyfriend, I'm getting ahead of myself. Loeb's boyhood, like Leopold's, had been heavily influenced by a governess. His governess, Emily Emily Struthers, was kind, but also strongly compelled him to study, study, study. So it sounded like Emily's job was basically to make sure that he was doing his very, very best at all times. Uh, so it sounds like the bar was set very high. And even though his parents weren't directly involved, it was like her job to kind of take that place and, you know, light that fire under him to make sure that he was living up to his expectations.
0: Well, expectations put upon him. Yeah, his he was living up to his parents' expectations.
1: Exactly, where it's like, wow, you come from this this powerful, wealthy family, and you better, you know, act like it. So I think they expected very great things from him.
0: I think he and Rose from Titanic would have been best friends.
1: <laughs> That's a really good comparison.
0: Hmm. Rose.
1: So uh, Emily would be responsible for his academic success as his father was too busy effectively running Sears and Roebuck to worry about his son's schooling. And his mother was too preoccupied with the social affairs at the women's club. Uh, It also should be noted, like, apparently, you know, uh, his father was vice president of Sears and Roebuck, but he was... uh, actually like running the show basically like it sounded like the president of the company didn't was like super hands-off on like the actual running of it so it's like wow he's really the one making all of the the big decisions it seems huh so i he was very very busy so we got two dads here that are just insanely busy workaholics here
0: and two moms, it sounds like, are very uninvolved.
1: Yes. We're like one is really sick and the other one is just like really involved in her philanthropy. So uh it so it was Emily who who pushed him to excel beyond his class, and he graduated from high school early at 14 years old, and then went on to the University of Chicago.
0: So similar as yep. um this is Lo, I'm sorry, what's the other one's name
1: uh leopold
0: Leopold
1: okay yep. I know sometimes it got really confusing for me because uh in the in the book that I was looking at, they would use their first names and and I was like, okay, which first name goes which with which last name? I'm like, it's just easier to do all last name than I know who we're talking about. Then I don't have to switch back and forth mm-hmm especially because it's iconically known as like the Leopold and Loeb case. Uh, so so Emily's the one pushing him so hard. Uh, Loeb uh, envied the freedom that other children were in his own age were enjoying. So other kids got to kind of be more engaged in acti- more activities, but he didn't have a lot of time to do that anymore. So even though, because he was involved with like school clubs and stuff like that, But because of this constant pressure of, you need to do more schoolwork, like, because in order to graduate early, you need to complete credits. And so Emily was pushing him to do more, 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 more so that he could graduate early. And that's why it's like, okay, cool. I'm a 14 year old who has finished an entire, like high school's worth of curriculum, like, cool you did it earlier than everybody else like you could have just stayed on pace and just been a normal kid too
0: yeah like honestly what's the rush is he gonna you know graduate high school and then halfway through university start you know taking over his dad's job as vice president at sears like what yeah, are they I thinking don't
1: i don't know what they're thinking there's just a lot of pressure to get things done really fast.
0: At least Leopold was like naturally, you know, yeah. he naturally just was in university at 15 where sounded <laughs> like Loeb was kind of like forced into it.
1: Yeah. Loeb definitely is sort of like the reluctant scholar and Leopold is definitely the kind of the natural scholar, I, I would say. When, uh, so when Loeb arrived at the university, it didn't go quite as smoothly as his friend Leopold's uh, transition to the university had gone. Uh, when he turned 15 and began college in 1920, Emily left the Loeb household. I mean, after all, what college boy has a, has a governess? So it's like, well, you're going to college. You, you don't need a governess anymore. Uh, and with her departure, Loeb lost his one grounding force in life. So even though she had been kind of like really driving him hard to uh, to study, she was also kind of the most stable part of his life and was kind of a, a source of comfort and stability. Uh, and then when she left, like he really didn't have anybody else to turn to. At at the University of Chicago, he earned mediocre grades and after his sophomore year, transferred to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he continued his mediocrity. So after his stint at uh, the, um, the University of Michigan, he returned back to University of Chicago and pursued graduate courses in history there. Uh, So that's where we find uh, him uh, when the whole murder plot unfurls. So Leopold and Loeb had first met in 1920. They grew up in the Kenwood neighborhood on the south side of Chicago which was known as an upscale primarily Jewish community so Leopold and Loeb—they're both Jewish, um, you know. Both come from wealthy Jewish families, um, and they also live just a few blocks away from each other. Like when I looked at the map of the neighborhood where they where they were kind of or growing up, uh, yeah, they live really close. And it's like I wish my best friend lived like a block away.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, side note, um, the fact that I grew up in Illinois and I lived in Chicago for some time and I've spent so much time there, um, as, as you've mentioned, just like general locations like Kenwood and the university area, it's just been like, it's been like bringing me back being like, Oh, I was, I've been there. I know what this is. And so just a little fun, fun side for me.
1: I know. Maybe I need to start mentioning like street names, like, <laughs> like Alice Avenue. Is that ring any bells? <laughs> mm-hmm, yes. It looks like, like a really nice neighborhood, honestly. Like you're really not that far from, it looks like you're not far from the lake in that neighborhood. No,
0: no, it's nice.
1: That's super nice. I also Google, like I did a Google maps of um, I think it was of Loeb's home. Like there, I, somewhere in there they had mentioned an address. I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's still around. And it was, and it was this really cool house. And it's so funny because it's just in like a normal neighborhood. And then all of a sudden it's this beautiful house with like all this great like stonework on it. And I'm like, I want to live there. <laughs>
0: That's cool. I might have to look it up after this.
1: Yes. So they had met at the Harvard School for Boys, uh, which was a, uh, a, like a school in their neighborhood. So it made sense that they both went there. Uh, and Loeb being the older of the two, uh, took Leopold under his wing. The two were opposite personalities. Loeb was sociable, handsome, and charming. Leopold was aloof, detached, and withdrawn but something seemed to draw the two together. Leopold seemed delighted to have won Loeb as a friend since it had always been hard for him to make friends. And before long, Leopold had fallen in love with his companion. There was nothing he wouldn't do for him. Dangerous combination.
0: So um, did Leo, I don't know if you saw tell us in the research, but like did Leopold Know about his sexuality until he met Loeb, or was it just like a complete shock, like shocking?
1: Well, and it's it seems like Leopold has kind of a complicated sexuality because it does seem like he does have some relationship with women, but it seemed like at this point in his life, anyway, Loeb came along and just like wowed him and he fell head over heels in love with him um and it's it's really interesting that in in the um the book that i used for one of my sources it talked about how um leopold was kind of the one who was like let's hook up like i really want to hook up with you and Loeb was kind of like whatever like sex really doesn't mean that much to me so i guess if it'll shut you up okay we can do it
0: or sure. yeah
1: <laughs> so i'm like i'm i'd be really intrigued to know what their like intimate dynamic would be uh and there's we'll get into a little bit of that later on okay too. okay <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, there was nothing that, that Leopold would not do for him. Uh, and, for instance, Loeb had once devised a plan to cheat at cards, so, like, they would gamble with their friends. Uh, and Leopold easy, easily fell in with the scheme. Like, he was on board full board. Uh, Loeb's troublemaking ways continued to get more extreme, he found that he liked causing mayhem, like smashing windows, stealing cars, and starting fires. So definitely a problem child. Uh, it, they talked about he would like to, like they'd like drive to a a quiet street somewhere, and then they would and, and then they would like smash a bunch of windows and like parked park cars or in businesses that were closed and it seemed like he just really got a lot of pleasure out of the the whole like plotting and like oh we're gonna go to this place at this time and we're gonna make sure nobody else is around and then we're gonna commit this crime we're just gonna like destroy something and then we're gonna just and then we're gonna get off scot-free and no one will ever know that it was us that did it and he really seemed to get get a, a real rise out of, like he got a lot of pleasure out of that.
0: Hmm. So a, um, a destructive hobbyist. One yes, would say.
1: yes. You, you could definitely call him a destructive hobbyist. So Loeb in his own mind was thinking of himself like he was this master criminal uh, and they were never caught in the act or prosecuted for any of their petty crimes. Although there was one story about them stealing a car and the like the owner chasing after them, which must have just given him like the biggest uh, adrenaline boner ever. Uh, But they weren't caught for it. So they I think they had been like questioned, but they couldn't prove anything. So it was. Yeah, it's just such a weird such a weird hobby I guess.
0: it is um, I imagine uh, he was bored
1: yeah and
0: and this just this just happened to you know be his outlet yeah or, yeah
1: So his narcissistic fantasy of being admired as some kind of criminal genius furthered his adrenaline junky ways and would lead to his undoing he never turned down an opportunity to raise the stakes in a dangerous situation. None of this, however, turned Leopold off. And in addition to being a lover, he found himself as a partner in crime. Leopold, like his companion, had a strong fantasy of his own. But instead of seeing himself as a master criminal, he saw himself as a slave in service to a noble king.
0: Ooh, this is is this is this a child appropriate, Chris?
1: (laughs) It doesn't ever get X rated, as as far as I know. I'm I'm sure that he might have had his own role playing fantasies, but that wasn't described in the book. So we're not gonna we're not gonna. um... I'm gonna
0: I'm I'm choosing to believe that he did.
1: Okay, perfect
0: for my own pleasure.
1: (laughs) For when I'm listening to the podcast later. Uh, uh, So the more tangled up in Loeb's plots he got, the more he took on the king role in Leopold's mind and the more willing he became. The friendship suddenly made sense. Loeb got a sidekick to witness his criminal genius and Leopold got his king to command him and to worship. The two briefly parted ways when Loeb, growing restless at the University of Chicago, left for the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, that was 300 miles away. So Leopold was really devastated when he found out that his friend was moving so far away and he was really worried that he was going to lose him forever. So Leopold actually followed Loeb to Michigan. Like, it's almost like the clingy boyfriend, where like, oh, I'm gonna go pursue this great thing. I have to do this for myself because this is what I'm set up, what I set out to do. And then I'm like, I'll come with you.
0: <laughs> I mean, I we were not married when we moved to Minnesota. We weren't even engaged, but my husband took a job here, and then I came with. So He was
1: just a guy you were watching from a distance with binoculars.
0: Don't tell my secret, (laughs) Chris.
1: So Leopold had followed him to Michigan, but the year proved to be absolutely disastrous. So start out the school year, he contracted scarlet fever. So he missed the beginning of the semester and set him back right from the start. Uh, Then his mother passed away and so that was this big devastating loss and so he had to go home and attend to that and then to top off this horrible year Loeb decided to just discontinue their friendship because Loeb had been accepted into the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity and his new frat friends suspected that Leopold was a homosexual. And the fact that they had been spotted together so frequently then cast kind of that same cloud on um, on Loeb. And so Loeb thought it was just easier to be like, well, I'm, I can't be friends with you anymore if I wanna be in this fraternity.
0: So I just wanna say really quick, screw homophobia
1: yes like and i mean that again homophobia has permeated society in all sorts of different ways for a really long time it is nothing new and it's like we wonder why it's been so hard to break it down like the reason it still exists it's like this was a hundred years ago and people were like deciding not to be friends with with people just because they might be that they might be gay like because it was it's like politically like you don't want to be seen with them like that is so messed up and obviously it's like here you are 300 miles away from home like this is somebody who you have an established relationship with them like of course you're going to be hanging out together anyway so this was not a good year for leopold So with no further reason to remain in Michigan, uh, Leopold transferred back to the University of Chicago heartbroken. But free from Loeb's influence, Leopold worked hard to make new acquaintances and became very active in school clubs. He was taking on challenging coursework and actually uh, succeeded uh, across the board. He graduated ahead of schedule again what's the rush people, always always graduating early. And then he decided that he wanted to continue his studies. So he enrolled at the University of Chicago's Law School. Meanwhile, Loeb had also graduated from the University of Michigan in 1923. He coasted by with average to good grades, uh, but his academic career was not exceptionally distinguished. He spent much of his time hanging out at the frat house, playing cards, drinking, and enjoying his detective novels. When he completed his degree, Loeb had no career path ahead of him or any ambitions for the future. But he did like history well enough, so he chose to pursue graduate work in that field at the University of Chicago. Now, in 1923, both boys found themselves back at the same school, and in September of that year, the two of them renewed their acquaintance. I hope that means that they, like, I hope that means that they hooked up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, they, <laughs> they invented they- grinder. <laughs> <laughs> it was a newspaper article, but still. <laughs>
1: It was just like an ad, like, I'll be standing on the corner of this street and this street Uh between the hours of 2 and 3 p.m.
0: And you had to wait until next week's issue came out for the answer of, like, I will see you at the corner.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Once they, like, once they got reunited, Leopold gave in easily to Loeb's Charm. And the two were right back at it again, two peas in a pod. So it should be noted that Leopold had a tedious obsession with Nietzsche's mythical Superman, who stood outside the constraints of law and moral code. And this would definitely play into how things progress later. He insisted that even murder wasn't off the table if it brought the Superman pleasure. Loeb himself had contempt for conventional morality and didn't seem to have any particular qualms with the idea of murder. This made the two a dangerous pair and set the the scene for a perfect crime that had been brewing in Loeb's mind ever since he came back to Chicago, A a kidnapping plot to ransom a child and use all of the pair's intelligence and cunning to get away with it so in the 1920s like around this time i feel like high profile kidnapping like ransom schemes were a big thing and i feel like this is where a lot of it comes from in popular culture
0: yeah i i agree i've heard multiple uh cases of you know politicians and company leaders uh, and entrepreneurs who like the
1: Lindbergh baby
0: yeah, the For Lindbergh example, baby is, which is like is
1: also around the same time too.
0: Yeah. I did a I did like a double back on my brain. I was like, who kidnapped the Lindbergh baby? Was it was it Loeb? But no, it was not. <laughs> nope. So so yeah, I'm I'm
1: Tune in next this... week where we'll be doing the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> we won't Lindbergh. leave the 1920s. Yeah. Honestly, we could just do like seasons by decades if we really wanted to, if it was like a <laughs> themed season. That winter, the pair spent many long hours plotting every detail of their crime. They settled on a ransom of $10,000 and would direct the victim's father to toss the money from a southbound train leaving Chicago, where they would be waiting in a car to scoop up the money. By the spring of 1924, they were ready to put their plan into action. On May 21st, the pair drove their rental car through the Kenwood neighborhood looking for a victim, but by 5pm they were a bit discouraged and were about ready to give up on the plot for the day. But then, as they drove along Ellis Avenue, Loeb spotted his cousin, Bobby Franks. knew that Bobby's father was well off and would be able to pay the ransom. He indicated to Leopold to pull over. The pair had found their victim.
0: It's interesting that they just, they didn't choose like a particular family, like how the Lindbergh family was chosen. They yeah, didn't-
1: They they were high profile, knew that they had money.
0: They Yeah, like they just assumed that you know, everyone in Kenwood, every child in Kenwood belonged to a wealthy parent.
1: Which at the time probably wasn't far off. Right.
0: But it's still, I still question that rationale. Because, you know, like, what if they're just like a panhandler child who's just like passing their way through? (laughs) They were walking through the wealthy neighborhood to get, you know, sympathy because they're a child, you know, that would have really backfired for them if they took that that, yeah that that
1: wouldn't have gone over well but yeah I'm wondering I'm I'm wondering how much they discussed who they were going to take because it sounded like they had all the other elements planned out but I wonder if they were if they were just really hoping for fate to just drop someone in their lap and that's kind of what ended up happening
0: yeah to see your own cousin
1: yeah like which also i feel like that's a bad choice of victim because you automatically have (laughs) yeah that whole you're more likely to be killed by someone you know than by a complete stranger i'm sure that logic applied a hundred years ago too
0: right and what were they thinking picking up their his own cousin when if they were to keep the child alive once they returned then You're like, Hey, <laughs> it was, it was uncle. So-and-so's kid. Yeah. You know.
1: Well, and, and I think the plan was that was that they never intended to let the, let the victim live. Especially judging by the, the planning that they, that they made. So, um, uh, once they saw Bobby, Loeb called out to his cousin and offered him a ride, but he refused because he was very close to home. So it's like, I don't need a ride. I, I'm like half a block away from home. Uh, but then uh, Loeb switched topics, asking him about a tennis racket. So I guess Bobby had like done really well he, like he had played a tennis match and he had done really well or something like that and he was like oh like tell me about this racket of yours because i was thinking about getting one for my brother or something it was some real bs kind of conversation starter just a way off- to get him closer exactly you know? but bobby was like but he was like genuinely excited to tell his cousin about his tennis match Which is, like, really honestly so heartbreaking because he just wanted to, like, he was just excited about something that he did really well. Yeah,
0: and he was glad someone was taking an interest in him and he just wanted to share.
1: So Bobby approached the car and then was lured in with an offer to take him around the block. As the car took off, Loeb reached for the chisel he had brought for a weapon. The blade blade end was taped up, so the handle could be used as a club. As soon as Bobby's attention strayed away from his cousin, Loeb grasped the chisel and grabbed him from behind, covering the boy's mouth, and he brought the blunt end down onto the back of his head. Bobby was still unconscious though after the blow, and he twisted in his seat with his arms up to try and protect himself from the blows. Loeb brought down two more blows to Bobby's forehead, but still the boy lived. Loeb struck him again and now blood was getting everywhere, including on Leopold's pants. Finally, Loeb dragged Bobby into the back seat, shoved a rag in his mouth and taped over it. Bobby grew quiet and then crumpled at his cousin's feet. The pair drove out of the city toward Gary, Indiana.
0: Don't go to Gary, Indiana. It's it's dangerous.
1: (laughs) We apologize in advance to any listeners who might be from Gary, Indiana.
0: Yes, we love you.
1: (laughs) But it does have quite a a reputation, I think, then, probably, and now. (laughs) (laughs) After about 20 minutes of driving, they found themselves at a sufficiently remote road near Wolf Lake, which is situated on the border of Illinois and Indiana. They waited until dark to finally pull the body from the car and bring it to the culvert where they figured he would not be found. It was a tough job and it was was warm that evening. So Leopold removed his jacket and set it by the side of the ditch. Bobby's body was then stripped and doused with hydrochloric acid to prevent anyone from identifying the body. Next, the two boys got down in the ditch to stash the body in the culvert. But recent rains had left standing water up to their shins. Leopold shoved the corpse into the drainage pipe, but it was by no means an easy fit. The water made things difficult and after much shoving and kicking, he was satisfied with the job he had done with hiding the body. When Leopold emerged from the ditch, Loeb collected his companion's jacket, but he heard a small clink on the ground as if something had fallen from the jacket. He looked around with his flashlight, but failed to see anything that might have dropped. So he went on, and the two made their way back to the car. Little did Loeb know, though, that he had dropped a pair of Leopold's glasses that had been in the jacket pocket. This would prove to be a fatal mistake in their supposed perfect crime. Next, the two posted their ransom note and dropped it in a public mailbox, certain that the Frank fa- uh, Frank's family would get it the next morning. They then returned to the Loeb house where they gathered all of Bobby's clothes and fed them into the furnace. Although Leopold noticed that one of the distinctive black and white checkered socks was missing, Loeb, however, was unconcerned over the sock that was unaccounted for. So Leopold was like worried that maybe the sock had been left at the site where they dropped the body. I mean, it's sort of one of those things where like a sock can get into like the most weird random places and that sock being distinctive could be like the clue that incriminates you.
0: Right, but if they burnt the other one, there wouldn't be a match to go with it.
1: Well, I would assume that they would know, like, oh, he wears that, like, he was wearing these socks the day. And I assume they were, like, high-end socks. Him sure. The son of, like, a rich guy. Sure. So after that, it was time to make the phone call to the Franks household to let them know of the ransom. They went to a Walgreens drugstore and used a phone there to make the call. Leopold made the call and spoke to Bobby's mother, Flora. He explained quickly and carefully that he had been kidnapped and that if she involved the police, her son would die. Then there was the matter of the murder weapon. The two boys went back to Leopold's house to relax and play cards. And when Leopold drove Loeb back home, Loeb simply tossed the chisel that he had used to murder his cousin out the window of the car. It landed on the sidewalk within sight of a night watchman named Bernard Hunt, who picked up the weapon, instantly finding it suspicious. He looked up just in time to catch a glimpse of the distinctive car that was being driven by Leopold. The following day, police had discovered Bobby's body, and worse yet, for Leopold and Loeb, the acid had not disfigured the boy's features as they had hoped. It merely discolored his skin. And furthermore, Leopold's eyeglasses had been found at the scene. Already, the master plan was unraveling. The plan went even more awry when the ransom drop-off scheme was botched and fell apart completely. In response to their bad luck, they began concocting an alibi, and they began to disfigure the typewriter that they had been, that had been used to write the ransom letter. They then dumped said typewriter into Lake Michigan and burned the remaining bloody blanket that had covered Bobby's body. Wow. I didn't realize that when I wrote it, uh, but that's a, a, a bit of a tongue twister. They burned the bloody blanket that covered Bobby's body.
0: Say also- that five times fast.
1: That would be, that'd be challenging. Something fun to do at home.
0: I feel like the- it'd be better said in a British accent.
1: They, uh, the, Bloody! They burned the bloody blanket that covered Bobby's body.
0: Yeah, is it better? <laughs> yeah, I like it.
1: Okay, we'll leave that in for you. On May twenty fifth, the cops knocked on the door of the Leopold house. Captain Thomas Wolfe came to ask about the ornithology classes that uh, that Leopold had conducted in that Wolf Lake area. It's weird that I realized when I was writing this that, okay, it's Captain Thomas Wolfe and it's Wolf Lake. Like weird, what's with the weird wolf connection? What does it all mean?
0: I don't know, it's the wolves.
1: (laughs) He answered, so Leopold answered questions at the police station for two hours, but he did not seem to think that he was being considered a suspect which is kind of weird because like two hours seems like a long time to just talk about like why you were in that area. But he was overjoyed and, and shared the news with Loeb. Leopold then shifted his attention to his entrance exams for he intended to attend Harvard Law School next. But his focus would once again be disrupted. On the 29th of May, police officers were once again at Leopold's house with more questions. Leopold was taken to the state attorney, Robert Crow. It was quickly established that the glasses found at the culvert belonged to Leopold. In addition, Crow had obtained a letter that revealed the homosexual relationship between Leopold and Loeb. And now he wanted to talk to Loeb as well. I wonder
0: wonder who sent that letter.
1: That that was really a weird thing. I don't know how he obtained that letter because it seemed like it was a very personal letter that would have maybe like, like it's not something that there would have been a copy of.
0: So it wasn't a letter that someone sent in revealing them? But it was a letter in between Leopold and Loeb.
1: Right. So it seemed like it was a, a letter expressing like kind of like little lovers quarrel type things that Leopold had written and uh, written to Loeb. Which is weird. It's like, dude, you guys live like three blocks away. You don't need to send him a letter. <laughs> like just talk to him in person. Well, Have you I even mean, tried texting him?
0: yeah like in our days like we can just text when we're angry but then they'd have to write a letter wait a day to send it wait a day yeah, for it, it to be delivered say. and then wait a day for them to resend their response so it's like it's yeah maybe i don't know
1: uh anyway so now now it it brought Loeb into this and and that he wanted to start asking Loeb some questions so, with the maximum pressure and the possibility of their relationship being exposed, one of them was bound to crack if they knew something about the murder. Loeb towed the line with the alibis. Like, remember earlier, they had like decided that they were gonna plan out their alibis, which is funny because it was, they were not good alibis because they were like, oh, yeah, like we were out with some girls. And it's like, well, they're gonna ask, like, who are these girls you were hanging out with, and like, you weren't out with them, so you don't have anybody to corroborate your story. It was really dumb, in my opinion. So even though they like their alibis matched each other, um, the investigators seemed like a little seemed a little suspicious. Soon it became apparent that Leopold's handwriting matched the handwriting on the envelope of the ransom letter so that's that's not good news for him and that the alibi that had been concocted could not be corroborated by anyone except for like the two people who were kind of suspicious. Other notes made by Leopold with his now absent typewriter matched the ransom note perfectly so you know like a like a typewriter kind of has its own fingerprint uh which is why they so like certain models like will have certain certain things will look a certain way when you type right
0: like the letters will look like a certain little a little like curl in an a
1: yeah or maybe like the
0: the amount of like indentation when you want to like tab over
1: something like that yeah and uh and but as we mentioned earlier they they destroyed that typewriter and threw it into Lake Michigan (laughs) the only thing that they could they could use to compare was other notes that uh that Leopold had written with that typewriter So it's like, hey, I have this other note that you definitely wrote and the typewriter matches the ransom note perfectly. Like, can you explain that? And also the fact that you suddenly don't have this typewriter is a little weird too. So after hammering both of the boys with questions over several days, it was actually Loeb who finally cracked under the pressure. Crow had his confession that he had doggedly been pursuing for days. On May 31st, 10 days after the killing, both boys confessed and described how the murder had taken place. The trial was a sensation. Never before had such criminals graced the stand in a Chicago courtroom. They were both from well-to-do wealthy families. They were well-educated and admitted that the killing was for the thrill of the experience. While the public was certain to be disgusted with the criminals and their crime, Crow faced his toughest hurdle yet. Clarence Darrow, who remember, also made another appearance in our Hawaii episode. Uh
0: Uh-huh, I remember that.
1: The wealthy families had enlisted the help of of one of America's most prominent defense attorneys. The two had already faced off once before in the courtroom and Darrow had humiliated Crow the last time around and Crow didn't want a repeat of that. Darrow on the other hand had more at stake than just his reputation. He was a staunch opponent of the death penalty and as he saw it, um, it was retribution rather than transformative criminal justice. And he was there to prevent the two young men from being executed. So he's got his, so you've got the two opposing sides have really big reasons for why they, they need to succeed in this, in this case. So Darrow was retained by the Loeb family for a fee of $70,000, which is the equivalent of $1 million in today's money. The original expected defense was to have the men plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But Darrow expected that a jury trial would likely not end in their favor and would result in the death penalty. Instead, he chose to go the path of a guilty plea with the hopes of convincing the judge, which was hopefully easier than convincing like a whole panel. So, like, he only had to convince one person Mm -hmm. uh, to sentence them to life imprisonment rather than death. The trial lasted 32 days and there were over 100 witnesses and experts that presented evidence. The defense presented extensive psychiatric testimony and also pointed to the neglect and abuse in both Leopold and Loeb's childhood. One witness even pointed to uh, dysfunctional endocrine glands as a possible source of, the, of this delusional line of thinking that caused the murder. The piece de resistance, however, was Darrow's passionate 12-hour-long closing speech. Like, can you imagine that? <sighs> like... <laughs>
0: how One, how does one talk for 12 hours? And two, how does one sit for 12 hours to listen to that?
1: That is a very good point. And it makes me wonder, did he have this all written out, or was it all up in his brain? Was he just like talking uh like a uh, train of thought for 12 hours? <laughs> right. About, just like, like, just why like why
0: rambling he, about his own about the
1: death penalty and yeah, and whatnot. Um, but it was considered to be one of his finest speeches in his whole career. So Whatever he was doing, he must have been doing a damn good job. The or
0: speech- everyone listening was drunk.
1: <laughs> or they, yeah, they were just like, okay, whatever. Like whatever we, I'll. They're innocent. If if it'll just get the get them to be quiet, I'll I'll say anything. <laughs>
0: it's
1: like a form of torture, but I'm sure it was a very very good speech. And, you know, they didn't have TV back then, so it's not like you were going to miss an episode of your favorite TV show or something if if this didn't wrap up on time. (laughs) So the speech focused on the inhumanity of the punishment administered, uh, on the punishments administered by the American justice system, Uh, and it also focused on the immaturity and youth of his clients. After much deliberation and consideration, the judge agreed with Darrow and on September 10th, 1924, he sentenced the young men to life plus 99 years for the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks. Good. <laughs> Leopold and Loeb were both sent to Joliet prison. Where they I've were- been
0: to Joliet. <laughs> <It's laughs> Have you been okay. to the prison? Uh, no, but I've been to Joliet Junior College. And <laughs> it's, Which it's only a,
1: felt like a prison.
0: A little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so they were, uh, while they were there uh, serving time in Joliet prison, they were kept apart as much as possible, but they still maintained a friendship behind bars. Leopold was later transferred to Stateville Penitentiary and Loeb soon followed. While there, they actually managed to do some good. They expanded the prison school system to add high school and uh, like junior college curriculum. Then on January 28th, 1936, Loeb was attacked by a fellow inmate, inmate, James Day, with a straight razor. There is some conflicting reporting on this. Uh, Some say that Day was attacked by Loeb and he defended himself, but Day did not have any wounds, whereas Loeb sustained nearly 50, including a significant cut to the neck. Others suggested that Loeb propositioned Day and was attacked for his advances. But according to those close to the situation, it's actually far more likely that Day propositioned Loeb and was attacked for turning him down.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, and the the thought behind that is like, well, one, Loeb was kind of the, like he was kind of the not really that sexual of the pair. Okay. So it's not, he didn't seem the sexually aggressive type. And also uh, the other inmate, James Day, had been caught uh, in a sexual uh, act with another prisoner. So it seems like he had a reputation of, of like, having sex with fellow prisoners. So, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it kind of leans more toward that. Okay. Um, And also the fact that Loeb, I guess, had like a really deep cut. Like it was like he had reached around from behind and like slit his neck uh, was like the most significant wound. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it seems kind of more like a surprise attack, kind of more than like a hand to hand, face to face. Like there would be more defensive wounds, I would think.
0: Which. You know, if someone turns you down for a sexual favor, murder is never the answer. It's like,
1: not. No, you say thank you for your time and you move on with your life.
0: <laughs> you go to the next person. Like, it's right. not I mean, a life or death issue.
1: Especially, like, I bet there are plenty of well-built inmates for him to proposition. Mm-hmm. That. Uh, Anyway, so whatever the reasoning for the attack, Loeb died in the prison hospital from his wounds. Leopold continued to work in the prison after Loeb's death, though he did suffer from depression. He did help make uh, improvements to the prison library and the schooling programs. He also helped out in the infirmary and even volunteered to be part of an experimental malaria treatment study In general, Leopold was a model prisoner and even wrote his memoir, Life Plus 99 Years, which was published in 1958. After many attempts at parole in March of 1958, Nathan Leopold was released from prison. He was accepted into a program through the Brethren Service Commission and he became a medical technician at their hospital in Puerto Rico. Everything's connected, we keep coming back to Puerto (laughs) Rico. While living there, he married a widowed florist and also earned a master's degree from the University of Puerto Rico. He taught classes there, worked for the Department of Health, as well as urban renewal and housing. He even researched leprosy at the university's medical school. He also did not lose his love of birds. He even published Checklist of Birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands in 1963. It seems that Leopold was making up for lost time. On August 29th, 1971, Leopold suffered a diabetes-related heart attack and passed away. So That is the end of Leopold's life and a surprising second act for him
0: yeah I was actually gonna I was thinking when you were talking about his later part of life um I almost had sympathy for him because Leopold was like just so in love with Loeb
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: Leopold's upbringing he didn't have anyone that was close to him Right. So even though him partaking in the killing of Loeb's cousin is not acceptable, I kind of get it because he was just so desperate for human connection. He just right? wanted this- someone that cared about him. Mm-hmm. And if that meant, you know, taking part in a devious act, then he was willing to do that because he was just so so alone
1: yeah he definitely is a falls into the category of like a lonely heart killer kind of and yeah and like after all that he had been through for a, his family life and and just being kind of neglected of course he like fell under Loeb's spell I'm, I'm i mean i really feel like Loeb was kind of the The manipulator here for sure yeah and i i'm kind of glad that it was leopold who got to outlive him by so long because it gave him a chance to really break free and i mean obviously like he married a woman who seemed very nice and they had a life together and so he really got another chance at kind of like a normal everyday life. And it seemed like he did a lot of good with it. I mean, he taught at the university, he was involved with public health. Um, It was, it's really impressive. Uh, You know, it's for anybody who goes back to the, the world at large, after they've served time for such a terrible crime, you can only hope that they use that uh, that second chance to do good. And it sounds like he did.
0: Yeah, I agree. It sounds like he, he definitely took advantage of that second chance he was given.
1: Yes. So um, this case being such a fascinating case captured the attention uh, uh, in many people's minds over the years and made a lot of appearances in pop culture. So a friend of Leopold's from school, Meyer Levin, which when I read that out loud, I was like, that is really way too close to Meyer Lemon." That's all <laughs> I can think of when I see his name. So I had to point that out, but it's Meyer Levin with a V as in Victor. Uh, so Meyer, published a fictionalized version of the murder and the book was called compulsion. And that was published in 1956. This version was very upsetting to Leopold. uh, And it was later turned into a movie. Uh, Despite Leopold's protestations, like he actually sued to like prevent the movie from being made saying that was like a defamation of his character you know, even though it wasn't like using his exact name, it was like a different name. But then the, like they ruled against him because it's like, you're already a, a criminal. Like you're already known for committing the crime of the century. Like you can't, you can't further defame yourself <laughs> when when like you're already have been defamed by yourself. <laughs> it's, it's like a very weird situation. Um, so yeah, the film did get made several years after the book came out. In 1929, uh, there was a play written um, by a man named Patrick Hamilton, and the play was called Rope, uh, which was later turned into a film by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and that was, uh, the film was made in 1948 and starred Jimmy Stewart. So that was a, a very big Uh, release uh, with a very high profile star Uh, many movies since have been influenced by the case including the Austrian film and they also made an international remake called Funny Games Uh, there's also Murder by Numbers oh I like
0: like that movie
1: yeah that was heavily influenced by this case Uh, and there was even an off-Broadway musical called Thrill Me Leopold and Loeb story which after I saw that I'm like I need to find a recording of this (laughs) so uh so yeah it's crazy this uh this idea of these two intellectuals trying to commit the perfect murder and get away with it has been really influential throughout the 20th century and beyond in popular culture uh, and it's still a fascinating case. Um, you know, it's not often that we get all of the the facts from straight from the killer's mouths like this. Um, but I think that just further adds to the intrigue uh, because you can find out everything that happened in this particular one. So there we go. I thought that was a really fascinating case that has, been in the back of my mind for a really long time and I'm glad I got to finally share it
0: well I'm glad that you did share it um I I struggled to recall this case at the beginning but as you told more details I remembered more and more and, and yeah it's just it's for me it's puzzling because like I want to know what happened in Loeb's life to make him want to do this like we know that he was like destructive and like a vandal but... right like
1: what's like what happened in his what switched on in his brain to make him a violent person
0: right like i want to know did, did like he fall did he have a head injury
1: Ooh, did... which, that would be interesting because i know that is a common thread in a lot of serial killers, actually. Yeah,
0: a lot of frontal lobe injuries like mm-hmm. result in distorted thinking. So, and like, aside from vandalizing cars, he didn't really do much. So what made it escalate so fast? Yeah. And again, I, he- I, I do want to say like, his actions are unacceptable, but I I do feel... A little bit remorse for leopard because he he was just he was desperate for love and he was doing something to gain love
1: Mm -hmm. and it's tough especially in that time period where it was definitely not accepted to be a homosexual and to be live i mean and in the end, I mean, he chose to pursue a relationship with a woman in his, in the last act of his life. Um, So even late as the century progressed, he still was not out. Um, And yeah, in this time period where it was such a forbidden thing to be in love with someone who was the same sex as you is uh and in most places probably was a crime in itself right uh so you really you there is that sense of feeling for for people where like oh you were forced into being an outlaw because of your love
0: <laughs> right
1: there's a little bit of that Oh, and I wanted to acknowledge my sources because I had yes. some very good ones. Um, Smithsonian Magazine, uh, their website was super, super great and helpful. Um, they had an article on this and um, really kind of helped me help steer my search. And then this wonderful book that has been on my shelf for a very long time. And I was so glad to finally get to break it out. It's called For the Thrill of It, Leah. Leopold Loeb and the Murder that Shocked Chicago by Simon Batts. I think that's how you say it. It's spelled B-A-A-T-Z. I'm going to go with that. Um, Yeah, it was every time I would like start reading a section in this book, I would just be like, oh, and I just read the whole chapter. I was just trying to pull little bits here and there, but I got into it so easily. So Another one would recommend.
0: Well, great job at telling the story. Um, it was very fascinating and nice to like dissect what was going on inside yeah. their minds as it went on.
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, we'll see. Maybe maybe next case that I do, I will be able to get off this decade, but you never know what might happen between now and two weeks from now. Uh, it's interesting
0: because I know the next case that I'm going to do, and it's actually from the 1970s.
1: Ooh, okay. But
0: I just listened to a podcast this week that took place in the 1920s as well. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I want to do that. But I had already thought before recording this episode, I was like, we need to like get out of this time yeah, period. We'll
1: break it up. We'll break yeah. it up a little yep, bit. Yep. But yeah. Also... Hey, this was our 10th episode.
0: Yeah, we've been doing it, it, it for 10 weeks. It's almost three that's, months now.
1: That's crazy. Like, I wish I had some champagne to pop or something.
0: I know. I don't have anything. But we can pretend. Boop.
1: Yeah. I got some <laughs> White claw in the fridge. <laughs>
0: yeah, I got some some high class franja in the fridge. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh.
0: Um. All right. Well, thank you for telling the story. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. Um, We love to have you here and we appreciate you. And until next time,
1: bye. bye.